the world that I have known growing up regarded death as a tragedy, which seems like an odd thing to think about death since it happens to everyone. And so one of the things I wanted to do was frame death as the middle of the story, not the end of the story, in terms of the family's life. Um, that when people are facing death, it's very hard to, to be able to see beyond the closed door of the moment of, of their loved one's death. But if they can have a vision that actually the family continues beyond that, there is an organism that continues, it shifts and changes and how it functions and, and who folks are to each other. But um, what I wanted to do was create a narrative structure within which the ending is the future of the family, that they've already moved into the future of the family by the time they get to the end of the, of the, the human journey's narrative. Hello, folks. Welcome back, or welcome to The Sacred Speaks. I'm your host, John Price. You can check out any information on The Sacred Speaks at thesacredspeaks.com. Also, the show's sponsored by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. This is an integrative boutique practice wellness clinic in Houston that my wife and I developed. And there's acupuncture, spirituality, meditation, psychotherapy, all kinds of cool things. Go check that out at the center for HAS.com, T-H-E-C-E-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-H-A-S.com. Also, The Sacred Speaks has a YouTube channel. Go check that out. Just uh, search for The Sacred Speaks on YouTube and subscribe to the channel and hit the bell for notifications so that you get notifications when new episodes come out. Hopefully that'll start getting rolling in about a month, maybe two. But if you go subscribe now and get the notifications, then you'll, uh, you'll know as soon as they start rolling out. Uh, the Center has a, a YouTube channel as well. On YouTube, search Get Centered or the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. And you'll see a panel discussion that we've had with the clinicians and practitioners at the Center. Uh, we've got about 20 episodes out. It's been a fun exploration of ideas that... Um, that are exciting to discuss and I think necessary to discuss. So uh, check out social media at the Center for Haas, Sacred Speaks, uh, lots of different modes of information um, going out through those channels. The theme music on the Sacred Speaks is from two of my friends at Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. The song is Clouds. And if you hang out to the end of the episode, the full selection is played. I've got a really cool interview coming out in a few weeks with the author of The Immortality Key. His name is Brian Murarescu, and uh, we've become fast friends. This book is powerful and fantastic. I highly recommend it. And uh, you just search him out. He's, he's all over the place right now. But a fan, <laughs> an absolutely incredible dive into um, religion in general 
and uh, certainly Paleo-Christianity, what happened before Christianity. And we can take a look at some of the roots that um, not only um, ground religion in general, but also Christianity and modern-day spirituality. Great book. I can't speak enough praise for that. Okay, I think that's it as far as housekeeping is concerned. I want to introduce you to today's participant and then let you know a little bit more about our conversation. So first of all, check out Dr. Sarah Schneider at the-human-journey.com. And as always, look in the liner notes of the podcast and you'll find information and links, all the things I'm talking about and more. I'm going to read her bio. The Human Journey founder, CEO, Sarah K. Schneider, PhD, is a performance anthropologist, theater maker, organizational consultant, and facilitator with degrees from Yale and NYU who calls herself an artist whose medium is groups. Sarah's books on human performance have been published by Yale University Press, Cuneiform Books, and Pendragon Press. She's published chapters in education, design, anthropology, and medical training books, and her insights have been featured on a variety of NPR programs and television and video productions. She consults on organizational and leadership strategy, program development, and learning design to nonprofit, healthcare, and corporate clients, and offers experiential training and workshops on professional skills and bringing spirituality into professional life. Read more about her on the website. She's got a cool offering, too. She says, for the Sacred Speaks listeners, The Human Journey would like to extend a special opportunity. $100 off The Human Journey's complete professional training package when you use the code SEEKER at the Eventbrite training registration site on the link provided in the liner notes. Check it out. Sarah's wonderful, and I enjoyed her the work that she put into this. It's, a f- it's an important, cohesive narrative and... Um, experiential process that can help people understand both the underpinnings of their history and the roots of the ways that our history affects our current life, but also the ways our culture influences how we approach the stages of our lives, including death and grief. Thank you, Sarah. Really had a good time getting to know you and talking to you. Check out all the stuff that she offers, and uh, for now, we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening. The first thing that comes to mind is, of course, we want to get into death and dying and the 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 part of your life that brought you into investigating that. But as I was reading your website, which I'll put all over the place in the conversation and on the web on my website, mm. I, I want to know what it's like at a dinner party when you talk to people about death and dying, and and what happens in those moments when people are like, oh, she, oh, God, she's going to talk about that. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, remember dinner parties? <laughs> I don't know. I don't. It, I, I haven't. No, unless they're in my head or by myself, I'm sitting at my own table in my office having a party in my mind all the time. It's like a, a checkbook or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, um, you know, for, in the beginning of working on this, I. Um, I was all too happy to start to talk about it um, and to start to share what I thought was needed in hospice and what I thought was um, what the opportunities of for meaning making that are there around the dying process 
Um, but it's interesting. If you start people off there at a dinner party, <laughs> you never leave that topic. Ah. There's nothing after death. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I find myself getting a little, like, I'm ready to move this on. But interestingly, even if you touch on it really lightly, you say the word hospice, everyone does want to share their experience yeah. of who they've lost and, and what it was like, and usually extremely positive experiences of hospice. And, you know, I, and I'm interested in hospice, I'm interested in grief. Um, and so I want to receive those stories. And I typically find myself in conversations that, that um, in a way, I'm really interested in the creative process around this topic more than I am in the individual stories, yeah. <laughs> um, which, is a, which is a hard thing to admit. Um, I'm more of an anthropologist than I am a psychologist. Yeah, that's why. But that's it. Made a lot of sense to me when you said that, given what you've done with theater and what you've done yeah. with, um, as as an anthropologist. That makes sense. Yeah. So, um, is it? Do we go here into? I mean, I do think that anybody, including myself, you know, I want to get oriented into who you are and what makes you tick. Yeah. Um, starting off of course in reverse i guess by talking about death and dying and where you are now yeah. on that yeah but would you here's here's a good like would you say five signifiers that describe who you are oh boy signifiers um a, a maker um a social engineer um a problem finder um, a restless um, mind and a person who who loves. How'd that feel? Mm. Huh. Mm -hmm. So where do we start today? You know, I think early on I was a person who created homework. Um, I, I really, really, really love school. And so um, I developed a lot of assignments for myself. And I don't know if I believed that the teacher had given them to me or if I just felt that they were important to be doing. <laughs> you and I have very different experiences in school, by the way. So. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. I loved it. Um, and what so a I gift. There was a story. Yeah, there was a story that my mom would tell. Um, I don't remember this. Where she would, she said at one point she was very confused that I was getting that much homework at the age that I was, and so she called the teacher to find out why is she assigning so much stuff. And the teacher was like, "I don't assign homework. What? I don't know what she's doing over there, but I don't assign it." And and I think in a way that's that's the pattern that has really continued that I would keep looking at what would exist in a given genre or a given field and what didn't yet exist. Mm -hmm. And it was those things where I was interested to work. So in the, like in the theater realm, you know, at the time, you know, a lot of the kind of work that I was doing when I had a small theater company, it now exists. But at the time that I was doing it, there weren't people as much who were, Coming, devising theater by essentially writing scripts that would be recipes for actions. 
in the sense that Alan Capron, the uh, boy mentioned. So uncrack, uh, crack that open a little bit. I got to know more about yeah. what you're saying. So, all right. So in a sense, a, a, a um, you can write a play as a playwright, and then somebody else often directs it, or you direct it as the playwright. And all of the words and all of the the basics of the actions are are spelled out. But if you're devising uh, a theater piece, very often you are creating something out of the imaginations of the actors and you in ensemble work. And the script happens at the very end of that creative process. I mean, meaning a literal script, like you guys are writing copy and dialogue yeah. and all that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And so it comes out of the life experiences of the actors. It comes out of um, their responses to some creative prompts that you give. It, it may come out of research that you do. You, you know, for example, here in Chicago, there's an amazing youth theater company called the Albany Park Theater Project. And the founders of it were a husband and wife team who wanted to give kids who might not otherwise have a chance either to make theater or to see themselves as college material, have the chance to do both. So their methodology was to have these kids interview people in the community, which is super multicultural, and then devise theater based on those interviews. So why are we so interested in actors as a culture? Like, I, I see these little images all the time about, oh, if we would just you know, turn scientists into celebrities, we'd be valuing the right thing. But I don't know. I think there's a reason why actors are our celebrities. Maybe you could be the person that answers this question for me. What do you think? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what I think. But, uh, I, I think that we have a, a cultural preoccupation with the interface between the real and the fake. It's just the, the nature of the beast. We're, we're interested in how it is that we get fooled um by other people we're interested in how we get absorbed in something that we know isn't true um and so we're constantly trying to understand who is the real person who is able to do that for me and i know you've written about fandom and and celebrity and i'm very interested in, in that topic um so it, you know it, in the 60s 70s um, late 80s when I was working, early 90s when I was working in, in live theater, um, there, were, there were a lot of people playing around with that kind of those sets of veils around um, how does the actor display part of themselves? How does the actor only be themselves yet be in a performative situation? Um, how do they sort of crack the the sense of complete absorption within a character yeah i mean the thing to just kick that can down the road i immediately started thinking about how often we are frauds ourselves mm -hmm. and and how we're all playing this part i mean part of Precisely. what i love about Jungian psychology in the first place is this in the kind of design of the the psyche is this persona i mean we even make it a theatrical reference and we're saying in all these various times, I'm acting a part. I'm being a man, or I'm being. And this is totally postmodern, but like, who was it? Plato said something about a lot of times we think we have ideas, but really ideas have us. Right. And so there's that piece also. And I love what you're saying here the interface between the real and the fake. Because on some level, right, we are acting as if. Mm hmm. 
where, how should I behave right now? Or who am I referencing? Or <laughs> what would a strong person do here? What would, you know, I don't want to be that, so I want to be this. Mm-hmm. And we get to see these folks play these things out on screen and theater that I, I we're just captivated by it. That's right. And and we see or, or we learn afterward or by our ideas about what it is to act that they made certain choices. They didn't have to do that. And so that mirrors our choices in being, you know, in code switching or in, you know, doing other things that represent the different social selves that we have. And we have a lot, don't we? I I interrupted you. You were talking about a really cool uh, theater for young people, and I asked you a question oh, about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks for bringing me back there. Um, I'll, 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 I, 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 you can be the linear one in this, <laughs> which is scary, by the way, Sarah. This is terrifying. I know. I, know. Um, I always tell other people when I'm the linear one, things are really bad. <laughs> Um, so, um, so Albany Park, um, so they would have the students or the young, the young teenagers do these interviews in the community and from those interviews and from the voices of the people whom they were really getting deeply into, they would devise characters Hmm. and they would have those characters interact in settings that they, they experimented with the settings. So one of their, um, beloved pieces in the repertory i think it's called saffron and it takes place at a persian restaurant in the neighborhood that has been there a long long time that hires people from all over the world who are now immigrants to the albany park neighborhood and it sort of shows the backstage of the kitchen and the the interaction between the work lives and the the other lives of these these people um, so none, none of that thing um, dramatically existed before, but mm-hmm. the characters inspired action that these that these people could create interactively. It sounds like group therapy or psychodrama to me. You know, like the, it, there's such a, that's the other thing is that we get to be voyeurs. Mm-hmm. And because I've got this cast of characters inside of myself, mm-hmm. It's it's almost like I get to externalize them and get to know myself better mm-hmm. because we're so we're every we're all of it we're this council of chaos inside of us that mm. um, that that gets we think it's separate we 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 think it's almost other they're That's the right. actors and really we're we're playing out I mean yeah yeah I mean when um, when we think about catharsis in the dramatic sense that that we're somehow able to process something within us by seeing it externalized on a mm-hmm. stage. Um, I think that that in a way, I think, you know, that limits us in the sense that it doesn't include the idea that we also can see afterward that that was us. <laughs> I had this thought just now, Sarah, that, you know, but a, I, I bet if you look at the box office, when we talk about these kinds of interactive models, mm-hmm. I, that's scary to people. I mean, I, I don't know a lot of people who are all going to be signing up and saying, yeah, put me in. Let me show all my shit that I carry around with me all the time. I, I bet I know. I mean, I know for like Broadway doesn't have a lot of these things on it. What they have are moments where the people can sit in the seats and observe. Right. But you're into the stuff that brings it into a dynamic relationship. Well, I, I am, but... Um, 
but I wasn't particularly about catharsis in the work that I was doing in the theater work. And, and as I was thinking about it earlier today, there is a direct, I, I think a somewhat, you know, as much as I get direct, a, a somewhat direct line um, from the kind of theater work that I was making to, the, to this kind of applied theater work that I'm doing now. Um, that I wasn't even interested in character per se in those days. I was interested in themes and systems of action. Um, and, and it was very anti-narrative. Well, talk to me like I'm a, a five-year-old, because in a lot of ways I am. Help me okay. understand <laughs> what all that is. Cool. So, um, so the first theater piece that I devised was um, actually about separation and loss and so it was really on the death and dying kind of realm hmm. and i actually organized it into five acts that were you know kubler ross's original five stages um and because i understood that audiences meet even particularly perhaps in a non-narrative piece where you don't have a story you need to let people know how much longer they have to sit through this <laughs> that linear thinking mind again yeah i mean people really want to know where they are and how much longer it's going to take yeah even if they're completely enjoying themselves which they weren't always you know in the, in the work i was doing i wasn't trying to necessarily entertain per se or give them a, a happy time i was the work i was doing was fairly you know thoughtful and it was sensory and you know those kinds of things i wasn't in that at that point really working on an emotional realm as much but nevertheless the piece was about grief and loss and it was doing it in a more formal formalistic kind of way orient me for a second where where were you then when when was this? Uh, brooklyn yeah so you were in new york uh, what yeah. year was this this was uh, 1988 and what was the theater world like in in New York in 88? Um, it was very lively. There was a lot of movement theater uh, going on there. The dance theater workshop was was big. Um, it's, dance theater workshop is still going. Um, PS 122 in the East Village of New York um, was actively doing a lot of performance art. I, I was super influenced by people doing performance art, which um, you know in, involves a lot of non-narrative stuff and solo performers doing um, multimedia that's maybe do music and there'd be movement and there would be clowning and there would be um, stand-up comedy, which they would then, you know, transform into to another genre. So there was a lot of mixing of genres then. Um, and, and it was shocking them. Shocking, and, shocking Shock and interesting. Yeah. Why is it not shocking anymore? I, I think it's just way more common. I mean, if you have a show like um, Blue Man Group, that's okay, yeah, yes. popular now, you know, as it is now, it's extraordinary to me that Blue Man Group, which is essentially, a, you know, a piece of performance art, um, got to be what it has. And it was just starting out in those years. Yeah, that was a big deal. Yeah, huge deal. It's a huge deal that it took on the way it did. You know, in terms of the culture's receptivity, to this nonverbal, um, you know, some of the the ways in which the, the visual with the way they use paint and the drumming, um, that that could even succeed is just amazing. <laughs> it's actually brilliant. 
you mentioned earlier you you had a dissertation that you worked on. Is this post dissertation? Um, nineteen eighty eight. It's exactly the same time. Okay, so you're you're working. These ideas are starting to form in you about kind of yes. non narrative. Absolutely, and and at the time I was in grad school um, at NYU, and the field was performance studies, which was specifically a non narrative approach. I mean, at the before I decided where I was going to go to grad school, the choices were either between a traditional drama department. And this other newish field that that was that I was becoming aware of, the performance studies field, and and I was struggling because I knew I loved performance. I'd been a dancer and a classical singer, but I couldn't figure out why I I just didn't respond to plays. Um, you know, I I I thought what people said to each other in living rooms was really boring. <laughs> <laughs> And what I what I wanted to <laughs> <laughs> what I wanted to engage with was stuff that people did, not stuff that people said. And so, performance studies was this the study of all kinds of cultural phenomena that have a performative aspect to them, including non theatrical things. Yeah, like, I mean, I wanted to say everything like that's ritual and rites of all that stuff, right? That yeah. And so, um, it you know, it could be Chinese uh, New Year's parades. It could be um, high mass. It, it could be a whole bunch of things. And eventually, um, you know, the idea for me, I was, you know, I'm someone who has always loved the fashion world and loved um, walking the streets of New York. And I kind of fell in love with the form of these framed windows that had these physical forms in them, these, these mannequins that were staged sometimes in these highly dramatic situations, but the story was supposed to be told through um, a series of tableaus. So the performers were not living, they were instead static, but, but the implied action took place between the frames of the windows. And so at that time, too, that was regarded as being a little bit questionable as a performance studies dissertation topic. (laughs) (laughs) Since then, it's gotten way more broad. But but at the time, it was like, well, wait a second, where, you know, you can't have a subhuman as a performer. A mannequin is Mm -hmm. a stand in for a human, but I don't know. Um, but um, but they went for it, and I went for it, and um, and so I wrote about the the fashion world and these mannequin displays as they were constructed as dramatic scenes, and sometimes they were drug overdoses that were staged in New York store windows, or they were um, nose jobs, or babies being born in store windows, you know, baby mannequins. Um, uh, and sometimes the display directors would be acting performers in the windows with the the gals. Um, and a lot of that had happened before I ever moved to New York. The, the period in which they, um, it was called street theater in the 70s. And they were doing these, you know, really like sex and death kinds of scenes in the store windows. And people would, on Thursday nights, walk up and down Fifth Avenue with popcorn and watch the windows being changed. Oh, which I was going to ask where this is happening. You're talking about Fifth Avenue in like commerce, in, you know, in fashion City. central. Yeah. 
Wow. Right. And, and there were other places, too, where this stuff was going on. I mean, I, I focused on New York City, but L.A. had some of this going on, too. It, I mean, it has to be a walking city. Yeah. Um, so there were parts of L.A. where that was going to be possible. Um, London, Berlin, you know, had some of this going on, too. Um, but, you know, so this was this was the situation. And it, it was a, an ephemeral art form that really existed just for a week. Um, people would change the windows every week. There were no records kept of the windows, except, you know, typically it was gay men who were the, the people that I found myself studying. And it was their lovers who had the slides of their windows in their hall closets. Um, and so a lot of it was getting, you know, getting in touch with their partners. Many of these men had died um, between the time of doing the windows and the time I was doing the research um because the aids crisis um intervened and um so it was a it was in a way a chance to reconstruct this period of you know some aspect of the men's history well i'm aware when you write a dissertation you become an expert in something that not many people are interested in it's like you know you dive to the most you know, geeky detail you possibly can, and you have a field day because it's so exciting, and other people are like, "What?" what? You know. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. so, go. You said it earlier. Like, what's the wildest thing you've ever seen in one of these settings, in in one of these presentations? In the store window. Yeah. Let me think about that. Um, I mean, a lot of the wildest things were things that I saw the pictures from. But that I that I never saw because things had calmed down significantly in the late '80s when I was doing this. Um, I th I think the idea of doing surgery in the windows was pretty bizarre. And what were, uh, uh, I guess, if you look at any like Dolce Gabbana or you know Gucci ad, you can see some pretty wild, interesting things yeah. today. It, it's yeah. that kind of stuff. Are we talking about high fashion and all of a sudden? Yeah, I mean it was interesting because it sort of went beyond it's typically if you go back in visual merchandising history the point of a window is to show off what you have inside but these completely departed from um any sense that the merchandise was important and they became an entertainment form in their own right and so the mannequins were treated as if they were um like the um the girlfriends and so it would be like this these were my girls these were my 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 harem um and you know if you go back to the like the 1930s with the, uh, there was a display designer called lester gaba he he had a um a mannequin whom he carried around and took to parties and treated as you know his lady and um, and he, she had a social calendar and she had expensive jewelry that Tiffany would lend her and she had a following and she would do autographs and she lived at his house and he would take her apart and put her in all her pieces in the little, in the little velvet bags at nighttime. Um, and in a way, I think she became something of an albatross for him because people just would not let her go. Okay. Well, that, I mean, we could, we could go in all kinds of directions with that. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Okay. Let's. So here you are, we're talking about the inspiration for performance in a way that isn't narrativized from the ground up, right? Mm -hmm. Not not from like 
Um, typically it's dialogue envisioned or, you know, storyline yeah. envisioned and then build it from the ground up. Yeah. But I, I think what you're, you're getting at, at least uh, the way that I respond to this is that there are these scenes that are communicating. It's, it's like a, a political cartoon, you know, they're, they're, they're able to communicate a lot of content in very simple and non-moving ways. Right. Exactly. I mean that four, three or four frames can tell the whole thing. Right. And so here you are walking the streets at night with everybody else eating your popcorn, looking at all these wild fashion, you know, figuring out this is what I want to write about in my dissertation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. well, and, and the interesting thing is, you know, I, this is and this is very typical of the process that I go through is that I I saw it as a form that I loved. I, I didn't particularly love any one instance of it. But I loved the the visual, the, the idea of the frame of the window and the notion of the, the flaneur or the person who just spends his or her time, you know, um, idly walking down the street and getting a glimpse of something that may or may not cause him or her to, to stop or go into the store. But but it's a it's a profound opportunity for a human statement. Mm-hmm. And so I was really attracted to the idea of these windows without necessarily even seeing one per se that grabbed me. And it was only on going deeper into it that I started learning about these windows that way predated my life in New York. And this turns into your first book. Second book. Second book. What was the second book? So the, the first book was um, a book about, I was always interested in the body and in the ways in which the body expresses. And so a lot of the work I've done has had to do with, you know, how do, how do bodies work? How are they culturally constructed? Um, and so the, the previous book had been about a very specific performing arts form. So in that way, it was the most conventional thing I've done um, because it actually was something that people could recognize as performing arts. <laughs> Um, and this was about the, the art of singing classical songs, you know, singer, you know, cemented in the crook of a piano, her hand, you know, right on the grand piano, dressed, you know, in some polyester something, um, and, you know, singing, singing away. I was interested, again, in like what wasn't explored. And I, I did some, you know, I think this is pre-Google, pre I was trying to figure out how is musical interpretation discussed? Because what I was interested in is how does a singer convey the sense of character? She, she might have to sing 12 or 15 songs in the course of an hour long recital. And without benefit of change of costume, without um, any kind of stage direction, without props, without a set, she's conveying all of these different worlds, one new world for every time she sings a new song. And yet when I looked at, you know, I think this was card catalog days, when I was looking at um, what musical interpretation stood for, it was always about phrasing. It was always about um, a choice that was really a sonic or auditory kind of choice. It was never about character or about um, the evocation of an entire world. Uh, yeah, and I've had, the, I did a, vocal lessons with this opera singer named Ken Gale down here. And it was, I realized very quickly that this is like a form of yoga, you know, and, and, and then of course it, it was clear to me like, oh, we call it the voice and the voice has a lot of connotations 
it's not just about a voice, mm -hmm. but how we're mm -hmm. how we're expressing what works. And that that's an internal thing, you know. Like I got to get clear on all kinds of shit inside of myself to be able to vocalize and mm -hmm. express this instrument in a different way. Mm -hmm. And the instrument is, you know, part of it is becoming conscious, as an actor does, of all of the things that you're signifying without even meaning to. Okay, that, there's an interesting union there between the acting and the the singing piece. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, but I want to know more about what you know. Like I, I, you're you're talking about the body and these expressions. What what do you know about people and their movements that they may not know you know? And what I mean by that is that when you spend so many years studying acting and the way that people are expressing essentially what is consciously expressed, but also which is unconsciously expressed. Do you mm -hmm. find yourself just analyzing people all the time? Yeah, it's really, it's impossible for me to watch. I'm sure. uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I feel really badly because I, I have friends who are performers and I'm the last person that they would want to have in their audience. Like, oh, hell no. You know, yeah, I feel so badly for them because I, I want to support them. And what ends up happening is I'm so aware of the gap between what they're doing and the effort that they're, and the, what I think is the intention that they put into what they're showing. And so I can't find myself having that second level disappear. For, for most people in an audience, um, you become absorbed in the surface of what's getting represented. But I find myself... Um, having an awareness both of the surface and of the effort to produce the surface. And, and I, yeah, and the intention for the surface. Does it take you out of the experience? Yeah, I can't yeah. get into the experience at all. So because I'm constantly, uh, there's a lot of kinesthetic empathy that I experience. And so I'm, um, if it's someone that I know and whose movements I know and who, you know, who I've hugged or I have other physical experience of, um, I'm I'm like in the, their body almost. It's it's like an experience of, um, you know how you you think about when you see somebody running to grab a bus. There's a little bit of oomph in you when you want them to like you want to help them jump up. <laughs> you like yeah, go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it, it's like that. Even though I'm not you know a stage speaker actor per se. You know I I was really singing and dancing. I wasn't speaking. God forbid. Um, but but I can feel what it is to do what they're doing. And and that sort of uh, running to catch, and catch the bus goes on for me for two hours. What, what do you mean? What, what happens? As long as the show goes. I, you know, I'm, uh -huh. I'm in that mode the whole time. I get it. Now I get it. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I get that. I envision yeah. the, the you know, when I was playing video games as a kid. And, you know, you, you think that if yeah. you, like, spin, spin yourself to the left, yeah. you're going to, oh, yeah, yeah. it's going to turn that's that. Exactly yeah. It. yeah, that's exactly it. Like, you, you make it happen. It's some uh -huh. empathic attunement piece, right? I mean, that's like a, you're, you're really connected or attuned with somebody when you're doing that. Yeah. And, and um, certainly that happens emotionally, but it, it really happens physically. Um. You know, I don't think it's an accident that the body, you know, the the meanings of the body and the functions of the body and, and now in the work I'm doing now, kind of the life cycle of the body, I, I think that that's, you know, just just what was given to me to, to work with. Uh, so at the risk, I'm going to 
I'm going to pin this yeah. part of our conversation here. Yeah. Why? What, what positioned you to be a person that, because what the listener doesn't know yet, I read your journal articles, um, and you've done work in prisons with, I mean, let's go to, like, let's make yeah. a list real quick of some of the things you've done. And then let's go back in time and say what positions you to be the person to, to, to be in these spaces. I don't want to say that I'm, a, you know, in a, like, I get to be the authority on XYZ. I'm just saying, like, this is the sort of the house I was born into, sort of, you know, um, it, that I seem pretty well lodged in that. Um, that location. I don't know. You said earlier you're you're in the anthropo anthropological world, and I'm in the psychological world. So I intellectualize the hell out of things, and y you are. I guess I'm so interested in the first place. I'm not only who you are, but but the body stuff has not been the area. I've certainly expressed things, and you know, been embodied. You know, whether it's sports or you know uh, music making is embodied yeah music well and, and becoming more and more as i'm as i'm getting older but mm -hmm. i've i'm in the head a lot and mm -hmm. I, I i something like this attention whether it's yoga or life cycle or um you know the theatrical performance in a way that's not the it's not the typical mm -hmm. mode of performance that you've been studying for many years so the the question, I mean, what what sets you up for that? I'm not sure that I know, to tell you the truth. I mean, I I was interested in death and dying as a kid. Um, and I'm were, not were you sure. around death a lot? Is it? No, I wasn't. I yeah. wasn't around death at all, um, or hardly at all. Um, I did meet Elizabeth Kubler Ross really early. I met her as a kid. She came to do a course for my mother, who was programming classes in biological and social sciences for our university. And so I got to meet her, and I started reading her work. And I had a, just a deep um, sense of resonance with it, um, and a, a sense that there's something about this topic that um, is it's not a glancing area of it. It, w it wouldn't be a glancing area of interest for me. Yeah. So no, no skeletons in the closet that kind of, I, I, I can't, you know, something could come up, but you know, I'll be interested to see if something comes up, but it's not occurring. Um, I say, yeah. I'm just yeah. more curious, not, not mining. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I am mining, but I'm, well, I'm I, I just, I don't know. I mean, I, I was very attracted to, to, be a dancer as a kid and so i was dancing from an early age and i also how, been, how young were you when you started um six or seven yeah I think. early yeah and and i also had I had three older brothers and the one who's nearest in age to me was also a very physical kinesthetically oriented person and so he and i talked body stuff quite a lot and that may have been you know influential he was he was a bodybuilder um and, and that may have been too. Yeah, I'm not a, I mean, I, I've been active m most of my life. So that the idea of being embodied, it's just not, it, I have a lot to learn, I think, from kind of being in my body. And you uh -huh. you did say something and not, I'll, I'll, 
I'll, I'll bake in elements of what we're going to talk about later. You said something, I was listening to an interview you did, and you said something about the hero and the heroine journey. Mm-hmm. And and this resonates greatly with me, is that there there's a certain outward orientation that a lot of the masculine um, and all disclaimers to gender, you know, aside, which I could, I'm happy to go into, but um, the masculine part of us that f- feels an energy and has to express it. And so it's outwardly oriented versus the feminine part of us that kind of doesn't slay the dragons inward, but goes, or mm-hmm. it doesn't slay the dragons outward, but goes inward to inward. imagine. Yeah. yeah. And I get it. So that's a pretty, that's a big binary, we, binary we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And it makes a hell of a lot of sense to me. So here I am, this like typical dude who is not aware of what's going on inside, you know, and just continuing to kind of follow that next thing wherever it goes. And I don't know why, it just feels good, I don't, you know. And so the, the the body thing tends to be the domain of the feminine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, for so long, I was really identified with my identity as a dancer. And I had a really hard time giving that up. Um, even as I mean, I was never just well designed as a, <laughs> as a being, or as a, um, an instrument for ballet, which is what I was doing. Um, the turnout was not that great. Um, you know, the knees didn't, you know, it's not all that great for your knees if your turnout isn't great. Um, and so I knew I, I kept dancing into my early 30s, which is kind of late in ballet. Um, and I knew that something had to give, something had to give. I was going to have to find another form. And yet the geometry of ballet so appealed to me. It so spoke to the abstractness that I also crave, the formalism that I also crave. Um, so it's not as if my experience is only about embodiment. It's, it's, a, it's this dialectic between kind of geometry and architecture on the one hand and kind of a heady way. Uh-huh. And this experience of embodiment. So I'm, I, I would say I'm in my head a ton as well, but it's in, it's kind of in a, um, like a right brain version of my head. That's what yeah. we, when we start to talk about masculine and feminine. That's what comes up. We start to go, uh oh, mm-hmm. um, it's it's not as easy to identify. But, you know, we start to soften things a bit and say, well, you know, I've got masculine parts of me, feminine parts of me, mm-hmm. but I do feel like just kind of a. I don't know. I, I, I wish somebody taught me how to ballet dance when I was a kid. Um, I feel like I would have been much more in touch with a lot of things going on inside in the first place, you know, mm-hmm. but instead I was out, you know, playing baseball and football and stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. h- hitting other people and hitting a ball. But do you, th- do you think that, like, what, what do you think about that? I mean, my typical answer is, well, you know, people that grow up as women, are more tuned into their bodies, essentially, more aware of the kind of flow and the nature of nature and the seasons and the trends and the masculine tends not to be. Do you buy it? No, I don't buy it. Um, <laughs> um, but just in terms of my own life, and I and I was sort of charting some things out these last few days that I that I'm fi- you know getting some insights from, but. Um, and it has to do with the life in the body as well. And my, you know, my life is somebody who's been pretty verbal and a writer and also somebody for whom the life of the body is really important. Um, I was very much 
I, I approached ballet in a very heady way. Um, and, and ballet is about surfaces, not about inner experience. So in a way, huh. Huh. Um, I engaged with a form that you could even think of in a, in kind of a, if you're going to, you know, create a dichotomy about gender, you could talk about ballet as a masculine form. Um, you know, I have a former colleague uh, named Anne Daly, who I think she, um, she wrote a book about the, um, is a feminist critique of ballet. I mean, it has all kinds of issues in that, in that realm as well. But, but it's, a, it's a very formal approach, and it has nothing to do with what you feel, what you experience. Um, you dance through pain. Um, you know, people typically do beautiful, <laughs> you know, beautiful yeah. things on stage, and then they, they're crippled and they walk off. Um, so it's not a, at all God, about it's brutal. It, it's brutal. I'm telling you. And so, um, so it's really not at all about being in tune with your body. Um, you know, this other art, this other dance form came about, um, you know, a series of different expressive forms, modern dance, different modern dances in the, in the 1930s, I think that, um, were all about what happens inside the body, you know, the, the generation of, for the movement is in the torso and the solar plexus, rather than being so limb oriented. You know, there are times even in, in teaching yoga, which I do now, where I feel like I'm training people to be a, um, one of those marionettes where if you pull the, the string at the top of the head, the arms and legs just kind of wave. Yep. And the torso does nothing, and the legs and arms are mechanical things. They're not expressing anything. They're just movement. And and I, you know, I've traditionally taught vinyasa yoga, which is um, mm -hmm. a lot of flat back movement with you know arms and relatively straight arcs. Um, there there isn't a lot of articulation in the wrists and the elbows, um, and so. It, it's been really interesting because the, the, both of those forms could be viewed, depending on how you do them, do, do them as really not being internal forms at all. You, you know, you could go either way with those. It, it really depends on how you do them. Well, they're good. You, you can body check me all day long about what I get. When I say things like that, I, I want to be corrected here. And I want to go further down this because I... <sighs> I don't know. I don't even know what I want to say there. I want to say at the risk of going far afield here, but you, the first time you and I spoke, we, we, I mean, you asked me a question about gender within like 30 seconds of us talking because I mentioned my daughter mm. who I had this, you know, big proclamation with my wife that we were never going to be into any princess stuff. And I think my daughter's got like 37 princess dresses, you know, like she's... You know, my my uh, my son went the other direction. He's like, uh, you know, soldier guy. You know, I'm totally gendered in in my household, and uh, I was the one. I was I was not in my son. I, I didn't let him ha let him have anything that resembled a gun when he was a kid, when he was a little. Well, that went away very quickly because he turned his finger and any stick and any you know thing into a gun. My daughter, I was saying, no, we're not going to do it. I mean, she's, we're walking her way around yesterday in a crown and the earrings. You know, she's three. So, I, I, you know, I, I, I like, I want to know more about this experience of yours. Because um, I, I don't know how significant gender 
plays into all this for you. But I am curious, considering you did make a comment about it right when we started talking. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, I think that my my sense of my own womanhood or womanliness or it isn't femininity exactly, but my identification as a woman became very solid only when I was about 30. Um, and it was at that point that I'd had a year teaching in um, Lexington, Kentucky, a place I never thought I was going to move. Um, for a year, it was my first job after I, I finished the PhD, and I was teaching acting um, and other theater topics there. And I developed a whole ring of female friends, um, and I became, a, you know, in quotes, a mother to my first puppy. Um, and I, I don't have uh, human being children. <laughs> um, so it was my first experience of motherhood. And, and, and it really did feel like a, an experience of, of a certain kind of motherhood. Um, and there was something about that where I felt like, oh, my gosh, I am a woman. Um, it, it really felt like it was like the woman thing was revealing itself to me. I had been very um, sort of intellectually identified, very efficiency-minded. Um, I had sort of this like swashbuckler, I call it the swashbuckler identity, you know, where, where, you know, you just take care of stuff. And, you know, and I'm making these little motions as we're talking by video, but, but they're sort of like chopping and slicing kinds of movements and actually rather like ballet. <laughs> Except you do my, my wife would say that's how I dance. Uh, you know, I yeah, do, yeah, I do. Yeah. it's very Big palms, um, you know, how karate chopping the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so in a way, that was my approach to the world all the way through, you know, through my 20s even. And then I then this thing started kind of opening up, um, and I realized, wait a second, this interiority is really important to me, and this mm. feels like actually the nature of of me. Um, and I didn't know about it, and so it, it was at that point that spirituality really started to um, become way more important. I had been um, interested in spiritual writers as a kid, and had read a little bit. Um, and had been, um, you know, I, I grew up in a Jewish family, but it was not, not really observant. And so I had one year as, I call it my super Jew year, <laughs> when, I, when I went to temple on my own and everyone was like, you know, where are your parents? And it's like, no, they're not interested. Um, um, but, but it was a headier experience. I, I was, at 30, I started really experiencing something that was more, um really ground like earthen um in the experience of the body and in the experience of gender that's funny because uh yeah when i think about a dancer you know i guess my own issue that's my own blind spot you know i immediately i'm, I'm still really enjoying what you were talking about about ballet being about surfaces because my mm -hmm. projection onto ballet is that one would have to be totally aware and totally connected with what's happening inside one's body. And when I see it, I think of this elegance and this connection with the body that I lack, you know, that I'm, I'm, I don't have that kind of handle on my body. Mm -hmm. And I definitely lump that into, you know, the, 
the feminine, the feminine, you know, that, that mm -hmm. kind of space. So thank you for ex expanding my understanding of that. You know, the other thing, if you don't mind my please one thing about that, um, is that ballet is about how it looks, um, not how it feels. And so the training is all done with a frontal, um, emphasis so you're always positioning yourself in front of a two-dimensional mirror wow. and see yeah. how you look in the mirror um and you're also you know exercising joints particularly um for their flexibility and their warming up but it's it's kind of a mind over matter kind of approach to the body well you've blown my mind thank you yeah. but yeah. when you think about what was womanhood to you before your 30s? I think it was a little foreign. I mean, I, I, I think I saw it as um, just sort of um, mushy or something. <laughs> um, uh, not uh, substantive somehow. Like the, to me, I think there was no there there. That, yeah, that's got to get you out of your body a bit if there's no there there and understandable yeah. why you have a spiritual opening when you recognize your womanhood and and yeah, uh, yeah. and feminine. Yeah. yeah, right, exactly. So w you were teaching something in, what were you teaching in Kentucky? I was teaching in the theater department there. So I was teaching acting, directing, um, and I think I had some dramaturgy courses, which is the study of plays. Um. And I didn't, wasn't directing that year. I was just teaching those courses. Um, it was a one-year position. And then, you know, to my enormous surprise, two years later, I took another job also in Kentucky. Um, and this time at a, at a um, utopian Christian college called Berea College. Um, that was a, an amazing experience. Um, and there I also I did direct. Why do you say like that? What was amazing? Um, it was, it offered a way of being with people that I hadn't experienced before. Um, you know, at that time I was living in New York and social interaction, you know, had a particular look. You would get together in a restaurant for a meal. It would last an hour and a half tops. You would have a conversation. You would part. You wouldn't see each other's homes. And that's what you did together. And it was a very stylized form of being a friend, mm. in essence. And what I learned in Berea, which is a town of like 9,000 people, where there's nothing to do, um, is that people play multiple roles with each other. The person who ran the sandwich shop on the, one of the main streets was also the customer for the theater department. Um, the massage therapist in town was also the mother of a young girl that I was directing. You know, so this idea that, you, you know, you don't have um, dual relationships of any kind, it just isn't possible in a town like that. And you had to think beyond the sense of a traditional sense of what the boundaries need to be. Um, was, yeah. was death and dying an interest at this point? Um. You know, I think it had gone into quiescence at that mm -hmm. at that point. Yeah, I think 
I, you know, I was, I was directing, um, Pygmalion <laughs> that year. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And so I don't think I wasn't really, I don't think I was thinking about death and dying again until maybe two, the year 2000. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Just cause I'm aware. I want to, I want to actually, maybe we can get into that now and then we'll pick up this thread too. Because what you've done now is been looking at hospice care, and I'm I'm really curious how this your interest in uh, in yoga, in the body, in dance, in uh, the study of theater and performance, how that shows up in hospice and mm-hmm. with a game that you've created that we certainly mm-hmm. want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Well. Um... So I, I had another kind of transformative period um, around the, around age 40. And I, I, I'm sort of, um, you know, I have those little cross-hatched red lines across my face like a cartoon. Um, that these things seem to keep happening, at, um, you know, on decade years. Um, it's like that's a little bit too symmetrical for me. But yeah. all right, there it is. Um, and... I went to Bali in 2000, and I was um, exposed to the more animist expression of Hinduism that they practice there. They practice there, and was very moved by the the physical beauty of it, and by the um, the warmth of the people, and by particularly by um, a Balinese cremation ceremony that I had seen. And you're, you've seen? Have you seen them? No, I, I'm just a, a little bit surprised because the, the Bali must be a pretty spectacular place. I've heard several people talk about being in Bali and seeing this. These, in particular, the cremation, but also the the funeral ceremony in general, that yeah. transform people's understanding of spirituality and who they are. Yes, it it was it was profound for me. Um, and I came back really, I think, sort of ripe for a kind of opening. And um, the, the cremation ceremony is, you know, first of all, it's a beautiful artistic um, creation that has for us as Westerners a lot of surprising elements, like the idea that there, there is no expression of what we would think of as, as grief, that people must smile their way through this experience. And it's so interesting to be in the midst of these people um, going through a funeral ceremony who are in this state. That was very interesting. And, and it's very physical. There's a, there's a, um, the young men are winding through the streets of the city uh, or the town um, trying to, if I'm remembering correctly, they're trying to weave a kind of a circuitous path so that um evil really can't figure out where they are mm. um because evil will go straight and um so we'll keep it kind of we'll keep screwing up with it <laughs> um, and um so i came back in a very open state and i had always said terrible things about yoga i you know as a person who had been in dance i thought of movement that was worth anything 
I thought it had to travel, meaning I thought it had to move across the floor, translate through space, um, involve something that looked obviously virtuosic. Um, and when I would see people doing yoga on a two foot by six foot space and, you know, go inside, I thought, this is nothing. Why are they talking about this as if it's something? It's, it's again, it's, a, it's nothing. Um, but I suddenly felt very receptive to, to yoga. And in, in fact, it started feeling like my spiritual path. And I started practicing and going to class on a daily, nearly a daily basis in 2000. And in the midst of that, um, I was reading very deeply in yoga philosophy, yoga literature. And it, and it started seeming as though volunteering in hospice was a very natural part of being engaged with um, the study of yoga. And so I started volunteering for a hospice here in Chicago. Um, and the way they were set up is you would go and make, you'd make home visits, you'd do kind of respite for caregivers. And, if, you know, they could get away for a little while, um, you know, a, a, a wife could go and get her hair done or just go for a walk or, you know, go do an errand that she needed to do. Um, that was one of my clients. Um, but so you'd be in the home and you'd just be kind of checking in. I mean, and it kind of depended what they would allow you to do. I mean, I, in one case, you know, she allowed me to give her a foot massage. You know, not everybody's going to do that, but that was something that that was nice for the care um care this is something you would propose the foot massage yeah yeah i mean so in other words you kind of have an awareness of what people might quote need during these yeah. times and you would yeah. say you know can you do this and they'd say yeah or no yeah exactly yeah i've, I've always had a, a feeling for um people who are grieving and i and i i write a lot of sympathy cards um, I find, you know, I really feel like I want to be speaking to people who are grieving. And I, and I think the handwritten has immense power, you know, especially in our, in our time. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's very meditative to sit with the image of them in my mind and to think about what, what would be meaningful for them to be able to read what would offer, you know, what's possible to offer right now. So, what is grief? Right, that's a I, I throw those big out lob balls out there for a reason. Yeah. Um. You know, grief is is love. Hmm. Um. It's you know it's love tinged with loss. And we we don't tend to do that very well over here. No, do we? no, we don't. Um, no, and and you know, I it's strange because I I didn't grow up with, you know, around people who were had a particularly sensitivity for for that. Um, but but I don't know. It, it, it has spoken to me more than other kinds of life um, occurrences. Um, I mean, for me, either the somebody having a puppy or someone dying are both things I resonate with <laughs> very strongly. <laughs> um, life cycle events like that. Um, so yeah, um, 
And what and I could see in hospice that their services were largely geared toward the individual. That they they offered music therapy, they offered art therapy, they did social they offered social work and chaplaincy um, services. And while there was a an ideal in the very concept of hospice going in, that the family system was going to be the uh, the unit care. That that isn't the way. At least in, in my apprehension, that that wasn't always the way services were delivered. That there was an opportunity to treat the family in advance of a death, and I don't mean treat in the sense of standard therapy per se, but but to offer something that would be healing for the family. Yeah, because immediately you think about treat, and it's like, okay, get rid of my anxiety or get rid of this discomfort that I feel. Yeah. No. No, it, it, it's to address where they are in that moment and to give them something um, that allows them to bear it. I think hospice workers are some of the, I don't know, I want to say deepest thinkers, but deeply embody mm -hmm. uh, realities that we tend to avoid all the time. I couldn't imagine what it's like to live in those moments of death Mm -hmm. as a constant exactly um i have to say i i'm with you on that um yeah can can you can you tee up the what you've created with the human project yeah yeah sure um so in 20 in 2012 i had um one of those you know there are these clusters of things happening in threes mm -hmm. that's sort of phenomenon. So I had a cluster of three losses that all kind of co-occurred in 2012. And, and uh, I started thinking back to what I knew about narrative, because um, in a way, I didn't want to listen to myself speak I, <laughs> about the story of loss, but I also knew that writing about it was going to be helpful. And the, the project ended up moving from my own sort of um, grief about loss into how do people tell stories of hard times that heal not just themselves in the telling, but either their audience or their community to an equal degree as themselves. And I started working with what I, what I called at the time of the um, sort of a framework instead of a what a, a, a an outline of frameworks for understanding life events um and i practiced just writing the story at that time in all of these different genres just to see what the story sounded like and so i was testing you know the idea that you know for example the things that are you know that seem negative at the time are preparing us for something bigger or better you know a very common cultural narrative or um that somehow something very positive was called forth in me that, you know, that I'm going to use for the further, the further journey. There are all of these different um, narratives, some of which, you know, are bastardizations of things that happen in therapy, in some therapies, and some of which are just, you know, part of the popular culture. And, but I found that there were some things that I was really resistant about. I didn't like the idea that um, there was going to be a, somebody was going to, 
connect is if they were cause and effect, something that happens in your life and some distinct effect that comes from that. That I just don't believe the world works like that. And I found that very unpersuasive. <laughs> so that was one piece. Another was that um, there, there would be any sense of deserving between what happens to someone in either a good sense or a negative sense. So yeah. a lot of these narratives have one of those two things. Either a sense of linear cause and effect um, or singular cause and effect, or the sense that um, the whatever happens was somehow earned. And you reject those. I reject those. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I just notice uh, I work with people a lot of time where they're, you know, I did this to myself, you know, that kind of mentality. And, and I don't know if it's that, mm-hmm. you know, at some point religions were created around that human tendency or the other way mm-hmm. around. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter at this point. I just know that there is some kind of tendency inside of us that either is here or we created out there yeah. in our image that that we then can personify a, a, a karmic structure or a, a really right. pissed off God that says, uh, you fucked up now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. And that was another piece too, that, that somehow it, this was part of, you know, a, um, some divine punishment. It, it's, it, for the one thing, it's, it's such a misconstruction of what karma is. Right. Even, even the idea that karma should be a set of, um, you know, karma is way more complicated, you know, in terms of one action leading to the next. And it's kind of impersonal, as I understand it. It, it isn't that, you know, you, do, you murder someone, so you are, are then murdered. It, it's, it just doesn't work like that. It, right. You know, there are these, in, at least as I see it, there are these um, kind of grooves or, or the, you know, the Sanskrit name is these samskaras um, for behaviors that tend to repeat. And once you kind of get those grooves going, they're very easy to repeat. And so you do have to keep an eye on those grooves. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, but, but it's, it's not othered. There's not an othering that happens where you've got this, you know. Yeah, nobody did it to you. And, and in a sense, you didn't do it to yourself. Stuff happens for a whole complex of reasons. Right. Um, it, it's just so multiplicitudinous that, you know, um, it just, that's how it, it works in very complicated ways. So if you reject those, what did you see? What did you want to move what towards? I, yeah, what I liked really was the hero's journey, which you, mm-hmm. you had um, brought up earlier, because it, um, it, it placed the individual's life cycle within a, kind of an archetypal movement that that I did think met the criterion of helping and under uh, helping the the teller understand that what's going on for them is not personal. It's actually part of a universal um, story, and it helps the community in their listening to understand too that the inner work that they're doing by listening places, um, you know, kind of like the related to the catharsis we were talking about earlier. Um, it, it places their listening work in the universal story as well. Mm-hmm. And so it really did speak to me and in, in, in some sense far more than other 
others. And I, and I liked, too, that it avoided another kind of bugaboo that I had, which was that I didn't want to call certain events good or bad. Um, I wanted to treat what some people might think of as good or bad as um, I wanted to treat that dichotomy as, as irrelevant. Um, I wanted events to be easy to bear or harder to bear. Who are you reading at the time? Who are you, who are your sources of inspiration? Um, you know, at the time I was going back to kind of um, narrative theory mm-hmm. type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the people who who really came back to me strongly at the time was this Gestalt therapist that I knew as a kid, um, Irving Polster. Um, yeah, who had great, great stuff. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. So, so the, just the very title of his book. I was like, every person's life is worth a novel. For me, that was it, because I thought, you know, there's comfort in understanding the aesthetic unity of your life events. You don't have to um, solve. It's not something to solve. It's something to see the, the beauty of. Yeah, I think I read, uh, he, he and his wife wrote together. I think, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Gestalt Therapy Integrated was a really important book for me early on. Oh, I love that yeah. stuff. We knew them as they were family friends. And so, yeah. Oh, that's a nice dinner table discussion. I know. I know. I mean, we had some amazing people at that table, at that dining table, because there was also like Daniel Levinson. Whoa. Uh, I mean, all so of this these is all life cycle shit. You're like, like yeah. getting lit up by all this. Is I am. This, I mean, is as this, a kid. Yeah. Was this because your mother was teaching at the university? It's because she was organizing these courses. And so we had all of these people coming into our house. Um, and I got exposed to all this stuff, you know, as a kid and teenager. Where was she teaching? She, well, she was, um, she was working at, the, at UCSD mm-hmm. at the extension. So my dad was a professor there. He was a, he's a rocket scientist. And my mother is or was a... Um, essentially a course coordinator she she would come up with course ideas and pitch them and market them and she would get some of the you know she brought in both the the social science and luminaries of the day but also a lot of the crackpots of the day um (laughs) what was it like being in that home um well it, it was exciting because you know you could tell when you were meeting somebody who was really good. Um, and I got to sit in on a lot of those courses. Um, in the 70s, a lot of them were experiential. And so yes. you know, yeah. we were talking about them, um, about gender earlier. And I remembered that, um, you know, my dad and I took a, a gender identity, not I wouldn't say gender identity, gender role class. Um, when I was probably about 13, we, we went in as guinea pigs for that gender roles class. And that, yeah, that was pretty powerful. I'm, I'm actually, I'm hooked by the fact that your dad's a rocket scientist and he's going into a gender class. Yeah. He's a pretty, like, that doesn't, that doesn't compute in my kind of scientific, no. he, he must've been a pretty versatile fella. Yeah. Yeah. My dad's game for anything. Um, <laughs> he's, you know, he's 90, um, five and a half now and and he says yes awesome uh, yeah okay well so that actually answers for one of my questions earlier like you're 
you were totally entrenched in the world of body-centered, experiential That's right. sciences, psychotherapy, all like the in San Diego, you're Yeah. You know, yeah, right. That's right. Like That's an right. epicenter of uh of that world. Yeah, I was immersed in this stuff. So um I just forgot about that. Well, uh, yeah, we do that, yeah. right? Oh yeah, that thing. Yeah. yeah. That That's thing. fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely formative and I and I totally did not recognize that my mother's work um was so influential for me because at the time, you know, I I was, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I was so uh, lodged in this intellectual identity that I was always grilling her, you know, she'd be making dinner and I'd be across the kitchen counter from her and grilling her about the logic flaws in some of these people's albums <laughs> as, as I saw them. And, and she'd be like, she, you know, I remember her like putting down the chicken and <laughs> saying, Sarah, I don't, you know, I don't believe in this stuff. I just program it. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. So, not to go too far afield, because I actually don't think it's far afield. I think we're squarely in the wheelhouse. Uh, who? Maybe you can't say who, but maybe you can. Uh, who did you have the the biggest critique of? You know what? I don't think I remember. I mean, I'm, I'm not being coy. I, I just don't. Think I remember. I remember asking the question. Yeah. Um. You know, I remember that I did take a course in in what was then called lucid dreaming. Oh yeah, and um, in from Pat Garfield, Patricia Garfield, and you know, it's the kind of thing that I would have objected to, but but I took the workshop and participated and did the homework, and I thought it was super interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. How old were you? Um, you know, anywhere from six to 18. Whoa. Yeah. Could you just survey these courses whenever you wanted? You were, I mean. No, I, I would go when she needed more bodies in the room. Oh, my, okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, now I get yeah. it. Now, yeah. now this makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I, I you know, I'd be in the, I, I think probably occasionally I'd want to hear someone. Um, I think I wanted to hear Daniel Levinson. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, but I remember her like, okay, I need some more people. His, his book, Seasons of a Man's Life, is, is like, I don't, it's right over here somewhere. I mean, that's a, it's huh. a wonderful read. I, some of that, I don't know, you, you quoted Winnicott in one of your, um, your articles. And I thought, okay, like she's reading the psychoanalytic stuff. Like, oh, all right, that's. And Winnicott is brilliant. I mean, that's like some of the most brilliant writing. Uh, so now you've got this like stockpile of uh, yeah. of intellectual arsenal that you're, you're being in in your complete formative years. Yeah, uh, and they all want to do good by you because your mother is the one that's writing the program at a <laughs> yeah. massive university. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, no, they were super nice. They were super nice to me. Um, there was even one, and I'm. I don't. I don't want to say the name, but um, but I I had a really neat opportunity to teach a workshop on body based spiritual practices at Esalen, and I ran into one of my mother's former instructors, um, whom she had had to fire 
um, because the experiential workshop had gone a little too experiential. Yeah. And, um, and still he, and, and she's been dead, you know, for some years now. Um, but even then he was real nice to me. Yeah. You, those projections <laughs> don't die very easily, do they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a rabbit trail I could go down for the next hour, but we've only got a bit of time left. So I want to be conscious of, of yeah. you getting to talk about like, okay. I mean, now I'm putting together yeah. all these pieces and saying, and, and how all this manifests for you, the way you've put all this together is yeah. what I was talking about earlier. It, it feels weird to call it a game. Do you call it a game? Yeah. Well, it, it's funny because the, it's like um, the first the first thing you say to people is it's a game. And then the second people second thing you say to people is it's not a game. Right. Here's why it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, telling people it's a game helps them understand, okay, in my mind, I hear it's a board game. Okay. It has cards. It has dice. It has a board. Um, it comes in a box. So um, in that sense, it's a game. But typically, after people take part in the human journey, they say, well, wow, this is, you know, it's not really a game. And, but then they say, well, what is it? Uh, what, how do you even say? And so I've had people come up with a variety of different ways that they explain, well, what, what is this thing? And I often say it's, a, it's um, an experience. It's a facilitated experience or a facilitated board game. It's not competitive. And it takes people through a very kind of subtle um, life cycle trajectory um, and, and kind of my own spin on the hero and heroine's journeys um, to help them. The, the ultimate goals of it are to help people develop belonging in advance of a life crisis like a death. Although it's also being used in marriage and family therapy and in addictions work. Um, and in, you know, cases where you have a family member who's mentally sh changing, mm -hmm. um, or things like gender identity or shifting, mm -hmm. things like that. So, um, so it takes people kind of through this process to develop the belonging, to, to take advantage of these kinds of crises as opportunities for meaning making at the individual level, but also at the level of the family system. And then to learn communication skills about important matters that are going to last them. I mean, it is true. I can't get my head out of the, like I've started recommending John Gottman's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, card deck. He, he, his, his crew mm -hmm. at, um, university of Washington, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, they, they put out a series of card decks online and my wife and I have used them. I recommend them to all kinds of people. It's like, here are the conversations you need to be having, but are somehow, you know, thwarted in your attempts to have them because of all the bullshit that we've accumulated through our lives that prevents us from actually doing what we feel we need. So, so that's what comes to mind. But it, it, it's different than that, right? Like, help kind of draw, draw the schematic for me. Okay, so. Um it's unlike other games in the sense that it, the power of it only really um, emerges be, when it's done with a facilitator's help. Um, that an individual card is not an individual conversation. It is, uh, it's rather the, the, the human journey takes place in four phases. Um, and, you know, going back to the theater background, it's got a rehearsal phase, it's got act one, act two, and act three, and there are actually intermissions between 
the acts so people have a chance actually to escape and to say i've had enough this is you know this has been great but i think i've had enough you know these are you know the amount of feelings i can take for today <laughs> or whatever whatever they want and then others can just continue on so it'll, it allows for people to have an, an escape route yeah um but but the power of it is in the um the interweaving it's like a a, a double strand of dna like double helix um in what's happening among the group as people move through a very standard progression or standardized progression of the nine scenes in the three acts. And so the order is very important and the, the kind of hats that the conductor, the facilitator is wearing, those play an important part as well, that they help maintain the safe space for the people going through the process. And the conductor models the behavior that um, is gonna be needed and called for from them. And, the conductor may have to teach the behavior and the listening skills. The conductor serves as a referee uh, in the sense of not not necessarily breaking up fights, but um, being the the guardian of the ground rules that that keep it as a safe space for everybody. Um, and you know, and also you know, as they get better at doing it, they also can do some creative um, machinations with the. Uh, um, with the materials that actually make it make their role a little bit more like a an or, like a an orchestral conductor or more like a, a stage director in altering how things play out a little bit more like the um, the game master if that's the right name for Dungeons and Dragons mm -hmm. person yeah it, it has a like, feel to it and that you're yeah. you're really evoking an imaginative aspect yeah. that you know sorry just doesn't quite get there. Uh, but I'm with you. We got to come up with a better name. Game is just not. Uh, yeah, it doesn't do it, yeah. does it? it? It doesn't. And and you know, sometimes I. It's almost like describing a smell in the in the box <laughs> that you have to do that. I mean, one description that I've used that I think people like is it, it's kind of like what happens among people at three a.m. around a fire. Yeah. Um, and so that put kind of puts people in the sense of oh. It's that kind of experience. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's designed to be a, a ritual that um, changes the identity of a family from a group of people who feel fragmented and um, lost in their own hurt or, or anticipatory grief, if that's, if that's the situation, to a sense that the family actually is an organism, is a unit that has a future that goes beyond the death of any of its members or the, you know, the immediate crisis, the, you know, the, um, the, you know, the, the vicissitudes of addiction, for example. Um, and so it's treating the, the immediate crisis in a sense is the middle of the story and not the end. Mm -hmm. So are you training the, is it therapists or is it, uh, what are yeah. you? Yeah, the, the people I train are, um, some of them are therapists, some of them are chaplains, um, you know, um, counselors, but I've had other people too who are like um, geriatric care managers or care managers in the hospital setting um, who work with people in, in medical circumstances where the family support would be really valuable. Um, but the, the dream of it has always been that it not be offered in the sense of 
me as, you know, I as the conductor am going to be helping you as the family in pain. It, it, it always, for me, had to be kind of a citizen act. And I've always wanted volunteers to train to do this as an act of compassion for, for groups that are, that are suffering. It, there's, a, there's a piece in the guidebook that I give the trainees um, about, you know, if the, the, the human journey presents itself as um, something that can work across spiritual contexts. I wouldn't say it's pan-spiritual per se, but, but it, um, it's intended to be able to help people of multiple spiritual backgrounds come together and to regard each other's backgrounds as resources. And so I thought it was more intellectually honest to be upfront about the spiritual underpinnings of the, of the human journey with the people I was training and not to pretend that there wasn't any. What does that mean? To be, I mean, to be honest about that, or no? no I mean, the spirit, the spirituality piece to that, and I, I just to orient for a second, because you've said a couple of things that I think are important, which is the training piece. Yeah. Um, so maybe if we focus in on this process and talk about the the is it the hero's journey, the origin piece, and then as it turns into a training space, because you. We have a mutual colleague and friend who's been on the podcast, who's taken your training, Robert Hilliker, and he's very fond of you. Of course, that's how I got connected with you. And uh, I, yeah, fill in any of the blanks there. I'm, I'm eager to learn. Sure. sure. So, so when I was um, trying trying to wrestle with how do you tell, how do you share an experience of um, of sorrow really, in a way that is not a therapeutic one per se, but is a community-oriented um, sharing, whether that be through a story or an expression of some kind. I, I tried to find other words besides story because I didn't want it simply to be within a narrative tradition or simply within a verbal mode. Um, so I started calling them residues of experience um, <laughs> as one way to talk about. It. But I had all of these, you know, very um, bizarre ways of referring to things that were not necessarily stories, but were just sharings of expression. Um, and what I started to play with was there are any number of genres in which we share our experience, and we have some set ones that we tend to fall back on. Um, some of which are, you know, drawing links between um, childhood and, you know, later times in, in ways that are reminiscent of different therapeutic traditions. But there are others as well that are used more in certain kinds of friendships where, uh, you know, there was, um, you know, one of the genres I ended up calling, he's a shit and I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> um, which is, you know, one way that we tell stories to each other about what happens, you know, in our lives and, or in that, in that genre, what happens to us. Um, it sounds like I, a couple of therapy sessions I've had recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I can also hear friends, you know, certain kinds of friendships where that, that tends to be the dominant narrative. Yeah. 
Um, and, um, you know, I lived in, I lived in New York city for many years and I enjoyed, um, you know, listening to the, the genres of lunchtime conversation at neighboring tables that would come up and, you know, the, the sense that, that I was in the right, but this thing happened to me, um, was one that I often overheard at, at tables that were so close together as they are in New York restaurants. Um, you were listening in on those conversations, were you guys? Yes, I was. Yes, I was. I was taking notes. I've lived, I've lived in New York. I know that uh, that tendency. <laughs> um, so, and then then there was the version that um, you know was more of a a hero's journey version that that represented what happens to the individual as something that happens perhaps to to many, if not all, mm-hmm. and as part of a more more universal story, at least, you know, in many cultures, if not all. Um, and I started just playing with these. I started writing my own story. That, you know, I went through a few losses that were in close um, proximity to each other in 2012, and so I experimented with telling my own version according to these different genres, just to see how do they sound. Huh. Um, and I was playing around with um, graphic novel, uh, graphic novels at the time, and with um, other sort of narrative theory pieces at the time, just trying to see um, what are the multiple ways of storytelling that can place uh, insight or shed light on these occurrences and what I take from them. Um, and what I found that I liked the best was this more archetypal story. Um, I found that it it, ser- it might serve someone other than than me to represent experience in that way. And I had been experimenting for many years with game structures. It, I, I saw them as ways to um, essentially continue to be a theater director, um, but <laughs> but moving pieces around and moving actions around. It was a way to create a system of action um, on a small scale. And so the games the games that I was kind of messing around with prior to this also were um, ways to design experience. And there was a point where I shifted from just telling the personal narrative to thinking about who could this help and in what setting and where does it become not an individual's narrative, but a group's narrative? Um, and so I had had a very long interest in hospice work. Um, I, I think we had talked before about how I had met Elizabeth Kubler-Ross early we did, yeah. in life. And then I'd become a hospice volunteer um, in the early 2000s after getting deeply interested in, in yoga philosophy. And... Um, and I had seen what was available within hospice and where the where the ideal maybe wasn't always wasn't always met. And I and I felt that there was a, an opportunity for a family systems approach to dealing with anticipatory grief. The the services that existed in large part were were administered on an individual level, while the family as an organism itself was hurting. Well, it, it's, this is kind of a weird time machine thing that's happening because in the time between you and I spoke last, I did interview somebody who wrote his written and is writing about death. 
And one of the cool things that she said is, and check out the next episode for the listeners to listen to Kate and I talk. Um, she, she was, we were really talking about our culture in the West, but certainly in the U.S., that really has a sanitized understanding of death. And, and so the way she said it, I, I just hit me in between the eyes, that number one, when somebody, because of the lack of a narrative around death, you know, we're, we're not only suffering the grief, but we're suffering the shock to the system that says, I don't know how to understand this. That's right. That's right. And, and, yeah. but what, again, I'm in this weird, like the, the folding of time, because this is what you're getting at. It, well, it is because I, I see um, an approaching death as a unique, uh, not unique, but as a, a singular opportunity to um, to make meaning, whether it's one's own death or the death of someone that you are getting involved with, and it would and I see it as an enormous loss not to take that opportunity to do meaning making. Uh, what do you mean by meaning making? Let's define that. Um, to to start to think about what what does it. Um, <laughs> What I have understood from people working in hospice is that it's very typical for the person who is dying to be um, more concerned with um, matters of physical comfort than with matters of um, existential meaning. But, but the folks who are left, or who are going to be left behind are having big questions mm. about um, what is it to lose someone? Where do they go? Who are we to each other if they don't continue to exist? Um, these kinds of questions. This, yeah, this is the when I sit with people, families who are about to or have experienced a death, I just notice how rarely people know they have any idea what to say. Mm-hmm. You know, just no idea, and so we offer these platitudes and things that aren't true, you know, things that aren't, they, they may be imagistically true, but um, me saying that, you know, they are looking down upon you, you know, playing a harp and singing a song right now, I think it does a great disservice to the the process of death. Uh-huh. And, and it's, again, it's also not true. You may believe that, but you don't know that. And, uh-huh. and all that's doing is, I mean, it's, I get it. I'm, you're trying to be kind. You're trying to say something. You're trying to do your best. But we're still at this point where our culture just has zero idea. Of of how, of how to be there um, in, in a way that honors the depth of what's going, of what's going on. Right. Um. You know, I, this this project would not, I don't think, have taken root without my having been there for the death of my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a, a very challenging relationship through life. But her, her dying period was um, a very good period for us both in terms of the relationship. Because she was... a um, a very grounded person in certain ways in terms of the realities of what was going on. 
And, um, and at that point, I'd already had hospice volunteering experience. And so I had seen how the, you know, how the process works. And I was comfortable in that setting. And I liked that setting. And so I, you know, I had the gift of being able to, um, to have done it when the time came for her. And I think for her, it was, she was so relieved to be able to use the real terms with someone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, she wanted to be able to say it. Right. Rather than have to protect everyone. And well, we don't necessarily, I'm assuming the way you mean is that she didn't really grow up in a space where people spoke in that way, but she courageously went into that regardless of not having the worldview that had prepared her for that. I, I think so. I don't know yeah. for sure, but I, I think so. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, you know, the world that I have known growing up regarded death as a tragedy, which seems like an odd thing to think about death since it happens to everyone. Right. Um, and so one of the things I wanted to do was frame death as the middle of the story, not the end of the story, in terms of the family's life. Um, that when people are facing death, it's very hard to, to be able to see beyond the closed door of the moment of, of their loved one's death. But if they can have a vision that actually the family continues beyond that, there is an organism that continues, it shifts and changes and how it functions and, and who folks are to each other. But um, what I wanted to do was create a narrative structure within which um, the ending is the future of the family. We, that they've already moved into the future of the family by the time they get to the end of the, of the, the human journey's narrative. Speaking of narrative, will you, will you give a few examples of how this functions. I think that would ground us a bit. Sure, sure, sure. So um, the human journey, I mean, is a four-part structure that takes place in a rehearsal phase. It's, it's structured according to theatrical norms. So it's a rehearsal phase and then acts one, two, and three with intermissions between the acts. And, uh, and the acts um, have a kind of a rising action, very like a theater piece. Um, there is a sense of, of climax in the middle of Act Two, and then there's a sense of resolution um, that moves toward Act Three. But that resolution isn't as as one might normally expect. Um, the ending with the death of one of the the figures in the play. The um, in a sense, the, the, the family moves toward a sense of who are they to each other from the end of Act 2 through the end of Act 3. And they have a sense of futurity that they build together. So it's one of those narrative structures that doesn't end with everything tidied up neatly in a clear act. It's one, what I would call one of those um, leaping off the cliff <laughs> narratives <laughs> where people where there's like, okay, it's a leap where you actually are flying together. Um, and you have the sense that, no, you're not going to fragment. You're going to go together. And as different as you are, you're going to see each other as resources. Do you travel and do this? 
Um, I haven't yet. T- tell me what you're thinking. Well, well I was just think I'm thinking about. So you're training people to do this. I I don't know. I mean, we've said you know this much of it, and I'm so thirsty for that kind of framework. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the I, I'm I guess I'm just realizing how. I mean, I know I need it. I know I want it. I know I'm thirsty for that kind of orientation and not one that has to imagine some kind of metaphysical mm-hmm. aspect of reality, but one that at least, because I, I don't know, I don't know what happens after. I mean, I, but I know that I'm, I need to be concerned about what happens now and today. And I know that I'm also missing that kind of guide rail in my life. Oh. And so I guess I just, I just felt that kind of personal desire to have God almighty, Sarah, I just want to, you know, fly you out if ever I've got a, a an impending uh, familial issue. No, no predictions being made there, but you know. Um, well, I think you're going to get a chance to participate in it soon um, with our mutual friend. Great. Yeah. Um, Good. Yeah, I'm down. Yeah. Um, it, it's not that that he's going to take you on an experience that takes you into a sense of a future beyond the earthly realm, but but the sense of the group's future, um, the life of the organism of the group as it goes beyond an immediate crisis. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the, um, the basic, the sort of platonic form of the human journey is um, the life of the all the individuals in a group and of the group itself as an individual's status change requires that the group adjust and it need not be restricted to death that simply happens to be an area that i really want to make um a difference in well i think i immediately think about addiction and when you know when somebody goes off to work and and of course robert would be somebody who's concerned about this uh, and I'm sure he's directly thinking, I know he's directly thinking about that. The, you know, the system itself is more powerful than the individual. And so what we often see is we can do some great work with people when they go into treatment or go into, like, you know, I lead a retreat. And when people come to the retreat, they're having these radical experiences just because they're out of their typical dynamics, but they go back into it and the system kind of gobbles us up. So again, yeah, right, exactly. So this is the system itself. Um enacting a vision of its own future. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, and it, but there's no sense of um, force with us. And so people only go so far as they are ready to go. Um, and there are all kinds of outs that, that give people the autonomy and the control to, to not um, have some kind of lovey-dovey experience that they're actually not ready to have. So not not sentimentality. Right, exactly. Right, we're, we're looking to have a deeper experience here, not just one that, because I think that's what we oftentimes substitute for this kind of experience. It's a sentimental exactly. kind of feeling. Yeah, kind of a pseudo-love. Um, and this is not about pseudo-love. This is about um, what can be, for me, one of the deepest at, communal acts that you can do is to co-create. And so the third act is about what are you willing to co-create together in very small bits? You know, what does co-creating look like? 
if you were to try it. Okay, well, you're hitting third act. T let's make it concrete. Take me through just, we can, of course, be on the surface, but take me yeah. through the process that you're walking. Because I know, I know the dynamic of the hero's journey. And, yeah. And are you mapping that on to these? Yeah. So, so what, what, um, what I was interested in with the hero's journey is um, there were a couple of stages of it that, that particularly spoke to me. You know, you know, I have probably everyone has their favorite pieces of the hero's journey. Sure. Um, but I think I told you before that I, I really love the, um, the refusal to heed the call. Um, I just think that that's wonderful. Um, I just think that's so fun. And, and all of the different forms in which that, all the forms that that can take. Um, well, and just, just for anybody who, like, I, I immediately, of course, I'm a total geek. I think about Star Wars. And we're, we're talking about the moment when Obi-Wan says to Luke, hey, you've got a bigger life to live out there. This is your father's lightsaber. You have a destiny that's beyond, you know, living on the farm. And just come, come with me. Let's go. And he says, oh, man, I got crops to you know, mess with. I got to stay here. And, and, right. and, and, okay, so that there is that stage of the refusal of the call. That the refusal of the call. I'm not, I'm not big enough. Uh, I, it doesn't interest me. That's not the thing I want to do in life. Um, you know, I'm busy. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, all of that stuff, um, which I just think, it, you know, is, is so fun. I mean, it's, it's like a, um, it, it it's like seducing a priest. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it has that kind of, um, that, that kind of narrative fun that, that that kind of movie plot has. It reminded um, me this song, uh, this, uh, TV show intervention was on and there was this guy who had his whole family come out and they, they have the van ready. The entire community is there. We're going to do what's right for you. He's IV heroin user living in an alley on a cardboard box. And then a cardboard box is a tent you know, dealing with his life, which is next to nothing. So the family brings him in and they say, hey, you, you can leave right now. We're going to send you to Malibu. You're going to stay for nine or for three months in Malibu and get better. And he's like, ah, you know, I got all these things to do. I got a schedule. <laughs> and it's like, dude, that is a, is a strong refusal. It is a very, right, exactly. Um, but that, but that pushing back against your, you know, what somebody else tells you is your destiny you know, we were talking about Dharma earlier. Um, it, it, it seems to be so, so powerful. Yeah. Um, and I remember somebody, uh, a woman who was like a grandmother to me growing up, who kept telling me about what a fine profession it was and what a noble profession it was to be a teacher. And I, I completely put her off all those years that, you know, being a teacher was, you know, not my vision of myself. Um, and it's very much at the center of how I see my work in the world. Yeah. Um, is now, but, but, oh my gosh, that refusal went on for years and years. Um, so that was one piece that I really liked, but then a, another, so I started working with, and I was testing out, how do you map the hero's journey onto a, a process for two to six people where they're each doing their own hero's journey, but they're talking to each other and they're learning from each other in ways that make it something more than parallel play. Mm. in essence um and there was something that wasn't quite satisfying wasn't quite satisfying and then i realized that there that the group itself had to be the hero 
So yeah, this so- is you're 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 running pilots. I mean, this is at this point you're watching groups and trying to see. You're kind of no, no. Uh, I mean, in the part I'm describing to you, this is years back, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, that's that's what I mean. Yeah. Back then, you're running pilots and you're trying to say, what is this yeah. thing? I've got this idea. I'm test fitting this thing and trying to see if it clicks or not. I'm observing that's people right. and you're noticing that there's something that just isn't quite right. That's and, exactly right. Yeah. So okay. I, would, I would run these, you know, I would run what were called play tests with them. And I had a very systematic way of doing it with first groups of unrelated people, then with um, groups of related people, then groups of people who um, were related and they had a life-threatening illness, you know, just bringing in one variable at a time. And every time I ran a play test, I was taking notes like crazy about timings, about how the questions were working, about the facilitation method, about things that needed to happen that weren't yet happening. And one of the things that really was bugging me was that this act three, um, in which I had the goal of, of, um, moving people toward the sense that the, that the group itself was a living organism, that this wasn't parallel play, that the, that the group had a reason to hang together after the crisis, and that they would have a new kind of life together that they would be co-creating. It would be different, but it would be um, the organism would survive the death. Mm-hmm. Um that wasn't quite happening for quite a long time. And then um, a couple of years ago, in the middle of the winter, I had this um, kind of, you know, click twist go along, which was that there's a later point in um, the hero's journey where the, where um, the hero returns with gifts. Yeah. And that part was so important that the, the way for, the family to um, make sense of their experience and in a sense to become adults was to give back to each other in the course of the experience itself. And so the third act became much more about their fruitfulness in the context of um, the group that was there and how they would provide for each other. Um, So they were already demonstrating care by the time they got to Act 3 in ways that took it out of the, you know, starting in, in the realm somewhat of parallel play, but then moving them into something that was much more messy and group-oriented. So when I describe how the, the human journey works, I think of it as like a double helix in which there's the individual doing meaning, some meaning-making around the dots of their lives and finding an aesthetic unity to their lives. But there's also the group as an organism going through its own journey that intertwines or winds around the individual. Well, and this is like microcosm, macrocosm kind of stuff. Like, yeah. like nature will, will emerge in nature. And so when we create a network, this is interesting that there's a guy, Tononi is, is his name. He wrote a book called Phi about consciousness. And what he's looking at is the is essentially what, how many nodes, you know, neurons, if you will, does it take for the lights to go on? You know, how many, how many pieces does it take to come together to, to then, to create a living consciousness? Mm -hmm. And he's, he's a, you know, mathematics guy. He's got a lot of complex stuff, but the, the theory is really interesting that, that consciousness in the form of network and Mm -hmm. that, 
that is to to have that kind of framework as you're as you're kind of creating these group opportunities you know you are then kind of in the moment both in the small and the large and it's a paradoxical mm-hmm. spiritual mm-hmm. event which you know you'd probably have to do it to actually experience it you know these these kinds of moments and with your background in theater i do i do think people in theater are more in in a daily in a daily grind they're more in spaces mm-hmm. like this where they're thinking deeply about working in a group mm-hmm. yeah it, it really it, i mean it really has been important to have that because there's a there's an understanding at least from having worked with actors and done some performing um that how do you get to these moments of group energy what does it take to have a to create a shared experience that has felt a felt sense to it um and so some of those techniques make their way into the human journey like for example you know we use sense memory mm-hmm. in the human journey so very often i was i was doing a um a workshop earlier today um for a group that's thinking about using it and there's a point where they're invited to remember something but not to tell it um and so they're prevented from telling the story and this can be very uncomfortable for people because we're so used to okay you think of something just tell it <laughs> why shouldn't i tell the story um but not being allowed to tell the story and simply do something else with your knowledge of it um expressively can be much deeper than what you would say in terms of what the others can take from that <laughs> yeah this this is the point where people are put into their discomfort i mean there's a yeah. um it, it is interesting like my wife and i went to chicago we were we were at second city that's what it's called right second city yeah and we ended up sitting in the front row and i had this moment of oh shit you know, we're going to, oh shit, we're going to get caught. Like, uh-oh. You don't want to be in the front row. And that, it's that thing though, that we, you know, to be, to, to, to bring yourself out, to, mm-hmm. uh, to implicate yourself in the world in a different way than you're used to, mm-hmm. um, is, is uh, simultaneously the thing that shakes the most vulnerability out. Um, but it's also one of the spaces that we avoid the most. Mm-hmm. And and the learning is, I mean, what I wanted for, what I have wanted for the participants is that there be a kind of learning and expressiveness that is there in their taking on the prompts themselves. That I I want a discovery in the moment of sharing. Um, I didn't want a canned story. Yeah. Um, and, And so all along I've been trying to figure out how do you get around canned stories and get into a space of discovery when people have a turn to to share something what can you share some stories like what do you see yeah when people do this yeah so um i mean i can even tell you from earlier today i was um doing this demonstration session with a group and some of the people in the group a small group of five participants and everybody was tuning in uh except for one from their workplaces and i suggested from the very beginning that um, they should try to find as private a space as they could because you know they're going to be a whole lot more comfortable um and so they did the best they could 
But at one point, um, one of the participants um, got what I call a kinesthetic card, where, again, she is invited to read the card for everyone to hear it. But the, the card itself asks her to do something rather than to tell. And at, at that point, a coworker had walked into the space and was able to hear over the Zoom what was happening and was joshing her and kind of interfering with her ability to participate. And it, it was... Um, you know, it was distracting for her. It was, um, but it also was good for her in a way. I mean, we, we let her sit with it for a little bit. We did somebody else's turn to give her a chance to um, get some space once again and then come back in. And then even after she was done sharing her turn, she was willing to do the kinesthetic task that I'd asked of her. Um, but even as we did kind of a, a debrief at the end, one of the other participants who, as it turns out, was her supervisor, um, said, so we're not going to get to hear that story. And, um, and I said, no, you, and you never will, because one of the agreements of this is that the stories don't come up again, um, unless the person themselves bring it up, you know, brings it up. So, um, so the suspension of the story happens in several different places. Um, in the in the experience and and what that means is that the people are stuck with the the um the contagiousness of the emotion of the person just sharing mm -hmm. their their own experience of the moment yeah this is something that obviously needs to be experienced mm -hmm. yeah but again i I know I've said this enough here, but we're just so limited. We have these, these psychotherapy certainly gets close, you know, various religious traditions get close, you know, we, and, and that is, they do a good job of it. You know, they, they do provide us kind of a mythic worldview where we can orient ourselves. And, and that, I think that I, I think I may have said this before, but there's a reason why Dante named the devil figure dis as in disoriented, you know, like, we, we we really suffer the burdens of being disoriented and and I, you know i think we have to go through a sense of disorientation because um, because we we uh, because we avoid feeling disoriented so often to 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 permeate to to go through that is to come out on the other side hopefully um, with a new sense of who one is and, mm -hmm. and so you're playing with that through this. You're 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 providing people these experiences to yeah. to get outside of the normal modes of operating. That's right. And, and the um, outside the normal modes of listening as well, and of receiving each other. So sometimes when I'm training folks, I sh I show the slide of because uh, we don't have a good word for listening that is beyond the oral. Right. Um, we just don't have that kind of receptivity that takes in, you know, how did the skin color change when this thing happened? Or how did the breathing change? Or, you know, what, what's going on there? Um, so I, I show this slide of this um, little beagle, I think, raising, you know, cocking its head and raise, cocking one ear as well as it's trying to figure out what's going on in its master's or mistress's voice. Um and, and that kind of, and the whole body is engaged trying to understand what's going on. Mm. Um, and that receptivity is there in the dog level. And we love seeing that. We love seeing that the, that 
the dog is using whatever it's got, including probably smell to a, to a large degree, to take in what is what is the reality here? Yeah, I heard this. My wife read this book, and I forget the guy's name. He bought an elephant preserve in uh, Africa, and moved over there to to just to live. And he said it took a while, but eventually he started to sense things in the dark that he never could have before. Yeah. You know, when we have light bulbs and windows and air conditioning, yeah. we do cut ourselves off from other senses. And mm -hmm. there's, and I, God, I forget who said this, but it's one of my favorite quotes about consciousness um, or, or reality rather. Uh, and he said, there is another world and it is this world. And I'm so moved by that, that, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to go anywhere else like the alchemist. You know, we don't have to read that thing or experience. But, but if we just engage, you know, the weed that's growing out of the concrete in a different way and really think deeply about it, it can transform how we live our lives. And I, that it just blows me away. Yeah. L listening for the what's not there, in, in a sense, or, or the... Um, the negative spaces. Well, I'm, I'm conscientious of time. I know we have nine minutes and I want to be sure we tie this up as well as we can. And mm. I, you know, obviously you and I can meander through this forever. So what are, what are the things you want to close with? You think people need to know, I know that you and I are going to talk about offering a, um, mm. a, a discount to do this training. And I'll certainly say something about it. Yeah. At the beginning. One thing I would really love to, to talk about is as I was trying to gear the human journey first toward the end of life scenario. One of the things I really wanted to recast was death as a tragedy uh, or that idea. Um, in the sort of worldview of the human journey itself, there, there aren't good and bad events. Um, there are things that are more or less easy to bear, but not good or bad events. <laughs> And so there's a, there's a more or less subtle way in which the structure of this experience um, pushes that out. Um, and part of me feels a little guilty for um, proselytizing a little bit in that way, because I think it is a form of proselytizing. Um, and I, I'm always very cagey about that as a, as a practice. Um, but... The whole experience starts with a claiming of the conditions into which one was born. Mm. Um, and the conductor of the experience always emphasizes these weren't things that you earned or that you deserved or anything. These are the conditions into which you were born. And the conductor treats everything as being on the same level, whether these were pleasant or unpleasant um, experiences. And there's no sense of pity. There's no sense of sympathy. You just... You just claim them and name them. Um, and we use conditions, they're called the conditions cards, in order to um, select those for oneself. And those are not necessarily shared with anyone. They're just claimed. Um, and, yeah. I got to do this thing. <laughs> I, these are conversations that I have all the time with people about, mm -hmm. you know, the the... Jung called it the spirit of the times. 
And mm-hmm. he, he was looking at the, he, he juxtaposed the spirit of the times with the spirit of the depths. Mm-hmm. And the spirit of the times is, of course, that, the conditions of your birth. Mm-hmm. Time, space, environment, culture, language, religion, body, genetics, sex, right? All those things. And the Buddhists call this you know, interdependent co-arising. Right. You know, and I, I, you know, I, gosh, I, I get that intellectually, but sometimes I lose it. But I that, don't. That's a that's a an important concept to take people through. It, it it is, I think, and and so from there they also claim the gifts with which they were endowed, including the people who arrived early on some level, as um, as the figures that pushed them along their way, or or um, the, the people who go beyond friends or um, you know the, the go beyond the prosaic nature of friendship, but actually arrive somehow as blessings in their lives or some act of grace, if you are a person who likes grace. Um, And so these are claimed too, not as good or bad, but just simply as this is, you know, it just so happened that, you know, I was good at making peace between people in my family, or I was good at adding numbers in my head. Um, You know, (laughs) I simply had those skills. You know, those kinds of things. Um, And so it's kind of practice in regarding the things that come along that as we and the way we use them in the rest of the experience as neither good nor bad. The way Jim Hollis said this to me when on the fourth episode of this podcast, Jim says, uh, you know, Jaws is not a bad fish. He's just a fishy fish. Right. If he comes along and eats you, it's just, he's, I mean, of course, it's all relative. Except he's doing fishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just so. It, and you're, you're on some level. You're you're saying there's an exercise. Of course, there's a part of me that if I'm being eaten by jaws, I give a shit, and I don't right. want it to happen. Right. And when we when we back way far out and we look at the world from a larger perspective, you know, it's uh, it's tragic, but it's um, right. It, it's both and. Yeah, it's both and, and so. To enable people to hold the both andness of it is to get them to perhaps, or to allow them to hold the story of what's going on right now a little more lightly. You know, or to have moments where that can be more be lighter. So, in a way, it was it's been playing with genre and story genre as a way for them to dispense with with story altogether. Well, and wouldn't would you say that it's also a way of dispensing with? the spirit of the times, their assumptions about death, their assumptions about life, their, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and their assumptions about how the conditions of their lives have to function in their lives going forward. Yeah. Well, again, you know, full circle, we're back to actually contemplating and connecting with death in order to live a more full life. Mm -hmm. Well, we got to finish up, Sarah, but it is a joy to connect with you. For me as well. Absolutely. I like meandering with you. I, I do as well. I hope for many like this with you. Uh, so as far as the website, I'll include it. Would say it right now. What where's the website? It's uh the human hyphen journey.com. Perfect. And I'll have that on the attached liner notes and check out the Sacred Speaks website and you will be directed to Sarah's work. Thank you for being here, Sarah. 
Thank you so, so much, John. Absolutely. Control.